Section 32 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Feet of the Eternal Father, Part 1. We must end almost as we have begun. We dared at first to climb up to the bosom of the Father and look over into its ineffable abysses, breathless with all we have seen and heard, or perhaps in our bewilderment have dreamed. We come now to lie down at the Father's feet, hushed and trembling, yet with a contentment beyond what we ever dared to hope. In his bosom or at his feet it is enough for us if the Father's shadow rests upon us. If the babe of Bethlehem will show us the Father, that will suffice us. It would be a life well spent, for so Margaret of Bone was inspired to spend it, in learning the lessons and loves, the sorrows and the joys of the holy childhood. But we must come now to what we may call the final disposition of the infant Jesus, that which represents his whole infancy and indeed his whole self, represents, as it seems, both his natures, and is at once the greatest joy of his divine nature in his human, and the greatest contribution of his human nature to the divine, devotion to the Eternal Father. Hitherto we have been learning devotions to the infant Jesus, now we come to practice devotion with him, and to learn his own special devotion from him, and this is in reality the highest devotion to him. We must begin by making sure that we understand what we are speaking of. We are speaking of devotion in our blessed Lord. Now devotion is a virtue of creatures. It is the truthful attitude which creatures assume in respect to their creator, an attitude of the soul expressive of the life of the soul, at times gathered up into particular actions and concentrated in special rituals, yet not the less expressive of its whole normal and habitual life. A devout man is not merely devout when he is at his devotions. He is always actually devout, or is always tending to become so. The word devotion implies the immensity of God's majesty, upon whose altar it lays the sacrifice it has vowed. It expresses also the nothingness of the creature, and the propriety, amounting to a necessity, of its devoting itself to him who called it out of nothing for himself. It signifies that promptitude and agility of self-immolation, which is the perfect state to which it is continually aspiring. It is the natural inward life of the creature before the face of its creator. But by grace it is raised to a supernatural end, and is more than a becoming posture in the presence of the creator. It tends to union with him, to acceptable love of him, to intelligent worship of him, to the possession of the beatific vision of him and to a world of supernatural acts, which bring about what mystical theologians have dared to call a deification of the creature. It is the mother of prayer, the administress of humility, the hand and tongue of faith, the heart of charity, the intelligence of self-objection, the vitality of perseverance. In short, it is the essence of our createdness, pure, wholesome, legitimate, and full of fragrance. Now we are predicating the existence of this quality in our blessed Lord, who was God himself, altogether divine in person, but having an assumed and forever now inseparable human nature. We are not only predicting its existence in him, but also its perfection. What then do we mean by it in him? It is the excellence of his created nature, but in him it is utterly dependent on his divine it belongs to him exclusively in virtue of his created nature, yet its acts are not unaffected by his uncreated nature. 
It is tinged in some ineffable way with the ineradicable unction of his divine person, so that its worth becomes infinite while itself remains finite. Devotion is not the same thing in him which it is in the saints, or would have been in him, had he been simply and incomparably, even to us, unimaginably holy person, but a created person, not a divine person. Like all else about him, and indeed more than anything else about him, his devotion is steeped in the hypostatic union. For, while his devotion can only come from his human nature, it must be its characteristic that it is worthy of God, and, in a sense, equal to God's requirements, and it can only be so in virtue of the hypostatic union, because it can only be so through being glorified by the contact of his divine person. We must observe, therefore, that our Lord's devotion is a true and real one, and not a mere figure of speech. For the sacred humanity is not exempted from any of the legitimate conditions of a created nature, except the possession of a created person, and such consequences as follow from personality, in the matters of conscience, self-consciousness, and the like. But this absence of a human person in no way impaired the humanness, so to call it, of his human nature. It was not in any sense an imperfect humanity. On the contrary, it was the most perfect of all humanities. It concentrated in itself all those human peculiarities belonging to humanity as it was devised by God, and for which it was so tenderly beloved by him and it concentrated them in its single self to a degree unknown to any other single human nature, perhaps indeed so preeminently above those of all men collectively, that his single humanity represented in itself the perfections of the whole human race, and something more than was represented in the rest of the collective race, a something belonging to his sovereign humanity alone. It might almost be an axiom, the more human, the more Christ-like. It is important to master this truth, for it is not uncommon for pious believers, whose orthodoxy is unimpeachable in the profession of their faith, to fall into a practical error in their meditations and so in their spiritual life, most of whose elements make their ingress into it through our meditations. These persons realize the hypostatic union so badly, or with such an ill-instructed indistinctness, that they practically conceive of our blessed Lord as of some portent, as if there were something monstrous, we must venture to write the dreadful word, colossal, titanic, disproportionate, in his union of two natures in one person. Gradually, in their minds, the miraculous, in the popular sense of that word, as implying some violation or suspension of nature, steals over our Lord's life, and sequesters whole regions of it as lying outside of what is imitable, and not to be regarded as offering even a proportionate pattern to ourselves. Thus the motives of perfection are weakened, and its treasures of example fatally impoverished. Many other evil consequences follow from the distortion of all the landscapes of the Incarnation, which comes from this inaccurate and untruthful view. From all this men would be delivered if they bore in mind that the absence of a human person is no deficiency in a human nature. Our Lord's human soul was not blessedly crippled or gloriously deformed, because it had no human person to rest upon. In ways we do not understand, but which the secret laboratories of creation might disclose to us, it was among the possibilities of creatures that an uncreated person might be substituted for a created one, and that such a substitution should not be a violence but a divinely congruous exaltation. 
Supposing that we did not already know from our catechism that the person of the Holy Trinity, who was incarnate, was the second person, we should gather it from our Lord's human devotion as it transpires in the four Gospels. When we have long and deeply meditated on the Incarnation, there is a new and peculiar interest to us in every word which our Lord utters with respect to God. We feel certain that much more is implied than is actually said, and that the very manner in which things are said is of itself full of disclosures to us of the majesty of God. First of all, when we collect those of his sayings which may be regarded as revelations of God, and view them as one collected body of teaching, much results from the contemplation which we had not before suspected. We then review them all over again from a somewhat different point of view, considering that he who uttered the words was God himself, and therefore spoke from something more than either the abundance or the certitude of his knowledge. In this fresh light we perceive new depths of meaning and glimpses of significancy which disclose to us places where there are depths, though as yet we are unable to look down into them. But the full purport of his teaching about God is not apprehended, even so far as we are able to apprehend it, until we consider it from yet another point of view, remembering that he who speaks is not the first or the third person of the Holy Trinity, but the second. This sheds quite a peculiar light upon his words. Expressions which hardly delayed our attention before are now found to be pregnant with meaning. Sometimes a distinctive light is shed over whole conversations or on connected passages of Scripture, like the prayer to the Father in the Gospel of St. John. Reading and re-reading the Gospels, as those will naturally do who are striving to be men of prayer, it is of no slight importance to us to have different and successive points of view whence we may look at that ground which we are traversing so repeatedly that at last there is a danger of the eye and the memory playing into each other's hands and whole pages of the gospel sliding under our notice rather than engaging our reverent attention. Some have striven to obviate this by reading the New Testament in various languages, with which they are, for the most part, less familiar than their own, and the amount of the difficulty which the foreign language presents, however trifling it may be, is sufficient to arrest the mind and make the old narrative in some sense new and capable of striking us by salient points which in more familiar languages we had not perceived. This truly is a helpful practice, but so also is that other one of reading the Gospels from some one carefully selected point of view, a point of view selected for a reason, and then from another point of view, and then another, and a very moderate acquaintance with theology will enable us to vary them even beyond our needs. No life, however long, will suffice to take us into the deepest depths of the Gospels, but it is not a slight thing to be always going deeper, or even to be only learning more and more, how astonishingly deep they are. We gather then from the exhibitions of our Lord's human devotion in the Gospels, apart from direct texts otherwise establishing the doctrine, that he was the second person of the Holy Trinity. We gather it from the wonderful things said of the Father and the Holy Ghost, and his silence about the Word. He indicates his own place in the Holy Trinity in this covert way, as if it was not so much that he was teaching us as that he was practising his own devotion. Who would be silent about the word unless it were the word himself? When he speaks the most strongly of his own divinity, it is his oneness with the Father upon which he dwells, 
while he speaks of the Father and the Holy Ghost as if in some way external to them. He conceals himself under the shadow of the Father. He asserts his own divinity, as it were with some reluctance, though decisively. But while he asserts it, he hides himself in his identity with the Father, as if the Father were ampler and broader than himself, and his paternity a screen to him. He is continually putting forward his Father's glory as the one object he is seeking, the one passion which possesses him. Even his intense love of souls is to be gathered rather from what he did and suffered than from the direct manifestations of his devotion. If we were left to judge of his office from his devotion, we should consider him rather as the restorer of his Father's glory than as the saviour of mankind, as a victim of reparation rather than a victim of expiation. He is so jealous of the honour of the Holy Ghost that he waxes warm when he speaks of it, and uses words of a fearful severity, not only unusual on his lips but without any other example than the one furnished by this solitary subject. He declares that while words against himself shall be pardoned, there is a peculiar limit with regard to the Holy Ghost which it is fatal for us to transgress. Against the second person of the Holy Trinity all things may be forgiven, but against the third there is an unnamed sin, or state of sin, which is especially declared to be beyond the reach of mercy, some stain which the precious blood refuses to wash away on this side the grave, and on which the wholesome fires of purgatory shall not be allowed to act when the grave is past. We may perhaps be pardoned, if, in order to make our meaning clear, we speak for a moment in a human way, and according to human conceptions. It is as if our Lord could do no more for his love of the Father by being the eternal word. This was an old glory, because it was in truth an unbeginning one. Hence it was his grand delight in the Incarnation that it furnished him with a new way of loving and glorifying the Father. Of course, this is not true, it is untrue, first of all, because of the adorable self-sufficiency of God, and secondly, because the eternal generation is not a mystery done, but forever doing, like a pulse of the divine life, which, as it never began to beat, can never cease beating. Yet this way of putting the matter represents to us a truth which would otherwise be inexpressible, and enables us to bring, at least imperfectly, into view an impression which results from the study of our Lord's words, read by the light of his divine person, rather than by that of his simple divinity. It serves also to illustrate our Lord's extreme joy in his sacred humanity, in connection with his peculiar devotion to his Father's glory. It was not merely falling from a higher fountain to a lower, nor even adding a lower fountain to a higher, it was the gaining of another fountain for it, lower indeed, not less than infinitely lower, but at the same time new. But are we warranted in saying that devotion to his Father's glory is a characteristic so observable and so strongly marked in our blessed Lord during the three and thirty years? We have said that it amounted to what in the saints would be called a passion, so vehemently did it appear to possess his soul. Let us remember the appearances of it in the Gospels. When we reflect that our Lord was himself God, we must feel some surprise that he should so seldom speak as if he were himself the original fountain of truth and the ultimate authority for what he might vouchsafe to teach. With a few exceptions, he speaks as one sent, 
as one under authority, as one who is delivering another's message. So far as he himself was concerned, he claims to be believed rather on account of his miracles than for his own sake. He expressly says that he does not bear witness of himself. On the other hand, he is constantly referring to the Father. He is continually magnifying him who sent him. His Father's will is all in all to him, his Father's glory the end. He has not so much come of his own accord as he has been officially sent to seek. Even his own immediate disciples are made to feel that it is the Father who is brought so prominently before them, that he almost eclipses the dignity and authority of our Lord himself, which are sedulously put forward rather as borrowed than as his own. His words to St. Peter when the Apostle made public confession of his divinity show that he himself had never explicitly taught his own divinity, even to those nearest and dearest to him. It was the Father who had revealed it to Peter. This, then, is the first thing we notice in our Lord's devotion, the constant reference to the Father as if it was his own habit of mind, and as if he wished also to make it the habit of mind of those around him. In the next place, as has already been intimated, he expressly brings forward the will of the Father as his own rule. It is the religious obedience he is under. It is to him both precept and counsel of perfection. His life is in many respects a strange one because of its unearthliness. Its relation to the religious rulers of the nation is outwardly equivocal. It is a life of homeless wandering with unfixed occupations and duties self-imposed. His movements sometimes wear an appearance of waywardness. He calls others from the relative duties of their stations in life as if all established rules were to give way to the expression of his choice. He works his miracles, sometimes with a secrecy which hinders their effect as authentications of his mission, sometimes in such a way as to give scandal, sometimes under such circumstances as to perplex, sometimes with words which sound untruthful, sometimes with a look of caprice, and once does he adorably condescend to work a miracle with a mysterious appearance of human petulance. He offends the prejudices of the Jews by a certain amount of intercourse with those outside the synagogue, yet he will not go so far as to preach his gospel to them. In certain matters he takes his stand as a reformer and disregards the traditional method of observing some of God's commandments. He willfully forfeits his influence with those for whose conversion he is labouring, by seeming to transgress the bounds of discretion in his openly expressed attraction to sinners. He speaks against the rulers in terms of the most startling condemnation, yet when pressed to declare his divinity he almost eludes the question. How are all these inconsistencies to be reconciled? Under what system of commandments or code of duty is he living? His disciples have been taught by him to consider that he has an invisible rule in all he does, a heavenly harmony to which he times all his adorable and inexplicable movements. It is his Father's will. That is his religion. He lives in secret intercourse with the Father. It is not so much that he is inspired by him as that he communes with him uninterruptedly. Whether he is hiding himself or showing himself, whether he is among the mountains, in the plain, upon the lake, or among the streets of the city, they feel that it is the golden thread of his father's will which he is following. He does nothing at random, and yet, so it seems, nothing on any preconcerted system of human prudence. Someone leads him. 
He talks with someone by his side, and it is someone, too, whose companionship does not oppress him. He hints at it, more than hints at it, as his father's will. The doctrine which he puts forward about the father is not less remarkable. He will introduce others to something of the same sort of intimacy with the father which he himself enjoys. This is part of his office. He has come to communicate the incommunicable father. He teaches that the way to the father is through him. His father's house is the many-mansioned home to which he has come to invite us. It is the father who stands behind his parables, and is the king and the husbandman and the giver of the feast. He goes away, and it is to the father he is going. He will prepare a place for those who love him, but it is in his father's house that the place shall be prepared. Faith in himself is urged because it is acceptable to the Father. He will pray to his Father for those who love him, and the Father will also grant to us all we ask if we ask it in the name of his messenger. When it is good for those around him, he asks the Father to glorify him with some of the old glory which he enjoyed with him before. When he comes to the waters of Jordan to begin his ministry, he will have this grave commencement authenticated by the testimony of the Father. When it is his will to reach the uttermost limits of his fearful sufferings, that last excess is to be the dereliction of his father, and what does not this reveal? He is himself infinite wisdom, and as the word he is in a specially appropriated sense the wisdom of the Godhead. Yet he seems to speak as if it were not out of his own abundance, as if it were not the spontaneous outpouring of his own magnificent intelligence, but as if he were simply an inspired prophet, as if he were only and precisely the accredited mouthpiece of the Father. He acts as the word of the Father, which indeed he was, yet rather as if an exalted, created word, than as the consubstantial word eternally outspoken. He calls himself the Son of God, and then purposely wraps the title round with ambiguity and double meaning, as if he were indeed by special ennobling and by singular unction the Son of God, but by no means the everlasting and co-equal Son. As was said before, when he does assert himself, when for the sake of others his love leads him to magnify himself, when he overawes us by the majestic gentleness with which he utters his own praises, the form it all takes is the declaration of his oneness with the Father. These are but specimens of the instances with which the Gospels so abundantly supply us. When we have received them into our souls, they seem to form the best part of our most intimate knowledge of our dearest Lord. All these instances are taken from his own teaching during his three years' ministry. It might be thought that in the infancy there was no scope for the exhibition of a similar devotion, as he was pleased to observe silence, as though like other children he had to learn to speak, and as he assumed the disguise of a child's passiveness, and never laid it aside for a moment, we are left to conjecture the dispositions of his sacred heart by the aid of theology, and the teaching of the infancy is altogether by example. In those first years his mysteries were his oracles. Nevertheless, if we look at the childhood attentively, we shall find most interesting traces of the same position with regard to the father which he openly put forward afterwards in his express teaching. The providential arrangements of Bethlehem and Nazareth look as if they were purposely ordered with this view. 
It is as if his sacred heart had planned everything with reference to this branch of his teaching, as if it expressed more of his heart than any other. Rather, it is not a branch of his teaching, but his whole teaching, the framework in which all the work of our redemption was accomplished. When we begin to reflect upon the Incarnation, we cannot but be struck with our Lord's condescending to have a human mother. It appears as if it was the deepest of his condescensions, and on that account not only the sweetest and most delightful for his creatures to contemplate, but an actual channel of the most substantial and exuberant benefits to themselves. If our Lord was to have a human mother, it must be plain to one who knows the ways of God that she must occupy some such place in the world as that which the Church teaches us God has assigned to her. Nay, we should expect her place to be higher, more influential, and in some sense perhaps more independent. And it is our firm belief that hereafter, so it will be found to be, and that we shall learn in heaven that, of a truth, Mary's grandeurs are such as could not safely be taught on earth because of our infirmities. No province of theology will have to widen itself so much as that which speaks of her. In her measure she will be as new to the saints who have loved her most, as the vision of bliss itself will be. Even on earth the last ages of the church are to have a knowledge of her which would amaze and oppress us now. But, though an earthly mother formed an essential part of the Incarnation, he is without earthly father. He draws his human nature from his immaculate mother alone. But no created father may come nigh his eternal filiation, the glory of which is his exclusivity, and he cherishes it with the utmost jealousy. This one fact is full of significance in itself, but it becomes still more significant when we observe that, although he cannot have an earthly father, he immediately places close to himself a created shadow of the eternal father in the person of St. Joseph. At least the shadow of the divine paternity must be there. The holy family cannot be the earthly trinity unless this be so. Bethlehem and Nazareth cannot be heavens on earth unless a fountain of meek government is flowing there to represent the fountain of Godhead and self-sufficiency which flows in heaven. When he looks around for apt insignia in which at once to shroud and to symbolize the grand majesty of his father, he finds it in the extreme humble tenderness and bashful gentleness. Where his teaching is to be by example, he is not content until he has put himself under the shadow of obedience to the image of his father. Thus St. Joseph furnished him even with what he could not find in heaven. Taula and St. Mary Magdalene of Parsi are not blamed for saying that the word searched heaven for the stole of suffering and found it not. Yet it was so beautiful in his eyes that he could not brook the disappointment, and therefore took flesh and came down to enjoy on earth a joy which heaven denied him. Devotion will often express itself by doctrinal allegories of a similar description, nor will the large heart of severe theology condemn the practice by which love speaks what is unspeakable, and comes to understand what was already in herself, but which she did not understand until it found utterance like this. So let us say now that here was one of St. Joseph's most glorious prerogatives. He gave our Lord what heaven could not give him, there was an impossibility in heaven which Joseph made possible for him on earth, and it was a possibility fraught with a peculiar joy to the sacred heart. 
St. Joseph enabled him to find in the Trinity below a subordination of which he could not find so much as a shadow in the Trinity above. Not a vestige of subordination could be seen upon his eternal filiation. He was in all things co-equal with the Father. What an intense delight, therefore, was it now to his human soul to be able to express his love of the Father by this peculiar devotion, this subordination to his created shadow and earthly representative. Moreover, in the days of Bethlehem and Egypt, it was not he, the Eternal Son, nor was it the Holy Ghost whose relation to Mary Joseph symbolized, but it was particularly the Father who communicated with Joseph, gave him his orders and warned him as he needed it. We know it is an axiom in theology that whatever God does outside himself is done by the whole Trinity. Yet nevertheless certain operations are assigned to the different persons by an attribution or appropriation, the mystery of which is so delicate that it can be no otherwise expressed than by such appropriation. So it most often happens that when God is mentioned without the designation of the divine person, we appropriate to the first person the action in question, as in the case of the dreams, communications, and warnings of St. Joseph. Even the virginity of our Lord's earthly mother is a kind of worship of his earthly father, as if to have had a created father would have dimmed the father's glory in the eternal generation. Thus did Mary's virginity rise up forever in voiceless waves of exquisite incense, or like the fragrance of a spice-tree shaken by the wind before the paternity on high, an incense of which she herself in silent ecstasy was ever conscious, and which the babe watched as it rose at all hours, gently forcing its way to the distant throne, like the spiral smoke-wreaths of these sweet gums climbing the altar to the blessed sacrament, and we watched it with his infant eyes, with an ineffably tender jubilee. But even independently of these mysteries, the whole spirit of the sacred infancy is always taking us by the hand and leading us softly up to the Eternal Father. For a child naturally points our thoughts to his parents. A child is not a child when we disentangle him from the idea of his parents. Even orphanhood only brings out the lost relation the more strongly. This is the reason why the mysteries of the infancy give out so much indirect devotion to Mary, so much more than the other divisions of our Lord's life, not excepting the Mary-haunted Calvary. Rightly, therefore, and more deeply considered, they do the same, and in a much higher degree, to the Eternal Father. Indeed, there is a point of view in prayer, from which devotion to Him and devotion to Mary blend with heavenly confusion into one. It passes and is gone, it was but for a moment. Only we saw it and were sure of it, and what it left in the soul we shall never forget. End of section 32